Hear the word of God from a selection of passages covering the last two historical accounts in the book of Judges. The first account is from Judges chapter 17 and 18 about a man named Micah and the idols and the false tabernacle he built. There was a man named Micah who lived in the hill country of Ephraim. One day he said to his mother, I heard you place a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. Well, I have the money. I was the one who took it. The Lord bless you for admitting it, his mother replied. He returned the money to her, and she said, I now dedicate these silver coins to the Lord. In honor of my son, I will have an image carved and an idol cast. So when he returned the money to his mother, she took 200 silver coins and gave them to a silversmith who made them into an image and an idol. And these were placed in Micah's house. Micah set up a shrine for the idol, and he made a sacred ephod and some household idols. Then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. One day, a young Levite who had been living in Bethlehem in in Judah arrived in that area. He had left Bethlehem in search of another place to live, and as he traveled, he came to the hill country of Ephraim. He happened to stop at Micah's house as he was traveling through. Where are you from? Micah asked him. He replied, I am a Levite in Bethlehem in Judah, and I am looking for a place to live. Stay here with me, Micah said, and you can be a father and a priest to me. I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, plus a change of clothes and your food. The Levite agreed to this, and the young man became like one of Micah's sons. So Micah installed the Levite as his personal priest, and he lived in Micah's house. I know the Lord will bless me now, Micah said, because I have a Levite serving as my priest. Now, in those days, Israel had no king. And the tribe of Dan was trying to find a place where they could settle, for they had not yet moved into the land assigned to them when the land was divided among the tribes of Israel. So the men of Dan chose from their clans five capable warriors from the towns of Zorah and Eshtaol to scout out a land for them to settle in. When these warriors arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, they came to Micah's house and spent the night there. While at Micah's house, they recognized the young Levite's accent, so they went over and asked him, who brought you here, and what are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them about his agreement with Micah and that he had been hired as Micah's personal priest. Then, with Micah's idols and his priest, the men of Dan came to the town of Laish, whose people were peaceful and secure. They attacked with swords and burned the house to the ground. There was no one to rescue the people, for they lived a great distance from Sidon and had no allies nearby. This happened in the valley near Beth Reob. Then the people of the tribe of Dan rebuilt the town and lived there. They renamed the town Dan after their ancestor, Israel's son, but it had originally been called Laish. Then they set up the carved idol, the carved image, and they appointed Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, as their priest. The family continued as priests for the tribe of Dan until the exile. So Micah's carved image was worshipped by the tribe of Dan as long as the tabernacle of God remained at Shiloh. And now to chapter 19, which tells about a Levite and his concubine and the abhorrent behavior by the men of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Now, in those days, Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day, he brought home a woman from Bethlehem and Judah to be his concubine, but she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. After about four months, oh, there we are, sorry. Um, And finally, chapters 21, uh, verse 25, the last verse in Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. All people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Greg. He skipped a lot. Um, And that was intentional because I couldn't cover both both accounts. We will cover both accounts in the sermon. Um, I do want to start off and say, if you have young kids in the room, uh, I'm going to cover the, the topic. The last account in Judges is very dark. There's violence, sexual violence, so please... Uh, if your kids aren't old enough, or if you, you can't talk to them later about this, um, please, it'd be a good time to, to go out in the cafe. Um, well, good morning. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here. Let me get my water. Um, and during our Revela- Revelation's a tough book to preach through. And during our Revelation series, just the way it fell, I got probably the two easiest sermons in Revelation. But in Judges, I think... I got, they're all hard. Judges is hard, but this, this might be the hardest one. Uh, this is one of the darkest moments in the Bible. Um, and I've been praying about this for about three weeks. I've known that I've been going to preach on this text for a long time and asking God for wisdom because, yeah, this shows dark darkness is what I'll say in one of my points later. Um, while the accounts here... These last two accounts in Judges are not any worse than others we might read about in history, whether it be with my ancestors, the ancient Romans. If you read, just Google how bad were the Romans. and Well, they would crucify people. That's how bad they were. Um, They were worse than that. Um, Or the ancient Greeks, or Genghis Khan and his raiders, or the Nazis, or others. all of these accounts are dark and disturbing, and it's, it's just tough to see it in the Bible. It's tough to see it with God's people. These were the people who were set free from bondage and given a land and a law that basically forbid everything that they did. And the, the, but that law was good so that it provided them a peaceful place and hope. And all they had to do was follow God and honor Him. But for some reason, they always turned to the religions around them. Um, These accounts seem to happen within about 80 to 100 years after entering the land. So Judges isn't chronological. Um, And there's a reason and an intention for the placement of these two accounts at the end of the book, and we'll look at that. So all I'm going to do this morning is answer three questions. What's happening at the end of Judges? What does this mean for us today? You can put these up. Uh, and where can we find hope and the good news in this historical account covering 400 years of brokenness and sinfulness and a lot of dark darkness? I don't know any of you English majors if I'm allowed to say that, but I couldn't come up with a better way. Maybe dark, dark, dark darkness. Uh, because it's pretty dark. Um, so what's happening at the end of the Judges? We're just going to jump right in. I'd like to tell you a funny story or whatever, you know, just start the sermon off with 
a fun story, but there's no funny story that relates to what we're about to hear. Uh, yeah, so what's happening? So 400 years is probably the book of Judges covers about 400 years. And as I mentioned earlier, these two accounts are not chronological. Probably the middle part, the Judges probably are chronological. Most scholars would agree, but um, these accounts actually happened earlier in the history, probably within the first 80 years, because they mention the grandsons of Moses and the grandsons of, uh, of the priests, of the Levites. So, But they're part of something that most scholars call the double introduction and the double conclusion. So just for a couple minutes, I'm going to be Danny, Bible scholar, history teacher, just to show you what the narrator, the, the person and the editors who give us judges, what, what they're doing. Um, and I get a lot of this from uh, New Old Testament scholar K.L. Younger and another Old Testament scholar, Daniel Block. I studied a lot of research, but uh, you can see the double introduction and the double conclusion. So what I, this is from Younger. So the A, A1, B1, C, B2, A2. So that's, that's kind of the pattern of, of all of Judges. So foreign wars of subjugation in the harem, I'll explain that later. We talked about that in Judges, uh, is being applied. And the harem is just when God tells them to like, completely get rid of all the idols and everything linked to this land so you could settle there and, and truly worship me. It's full devotion to God. So there's foreign wars of subjugation and problems with the harem being applied. Then there's difficulty with foreign religious idols. Then the middle, so those are the first two introductions. Then there's the middle part, which is 3-7 through the end of chapter 16. And that's the account of the judges. Then there's two conclusions. Difficulty with domestic religious idols and domestic wars with the harem being applied. And this, so at first it's like outsiders and now it's inside the Israelite camp these things are happening, inside their community. Uh, the term harem seems to connote, this is from uh, Daniel Block, the uncompromising devotion to things without the possibility of recall or redemption. It was not only applied to idolatrous objects, but to, but to any plunder or people. The goal was to, they needed to settle in the land and not worship the gods and, and be influenced by the people around them. If you want more details on this, the podcast that we did on Joshua, Lawrence, Eric, and I, we, we go into this in more detail. And I just want to say this about our podcast. Um, our podcasts are meant to supplement our sermons. Now, some of them, you're probably like, the podcast on online dating, how is that supplementing the sermons? We don't do topical sermons generally here at Waypoint. We teach through, we're trying to teach through the whole Bible in 10 years. So sometimes there are topics that we want to cover, uh, but we also supplement the sermons uh, on things as we were studying them as pastors or other members of our congregation who are studying them in Bible studies. We, we try to bring these, just bring, enhance the conversation so that as we're learning as a church and being the local body. So the podcast in Joshua shares a little more about this word haram, but it just meant that they were supposed to completely eliminate anything to do with the Canaanites, partly because of the evil of the Canaanites, and then also because God wanted them to enter into this land and not be distracted and, and, and only focus on him. And he was going to provide a way for them to do this. Um, there's another pattern that we can see in the last two accounts, the double conclusion. We'll put that up. Um, 
In those days there was no king, every man did right. In those days there was no king, in those days there was no king, in those days there was no king, every man did what was right in his own eyes. So each, each one of those has this pattern too. The Old Testament is very fascinating. There's a lot of patterns there that sometimes we miss, maybe because we're reading it in English, but also just, you know, we, we might miss to see what, what God is trying to do and teach us through this text. So are you confused at this point? I just put up some scholarly patterns, and, but uh, it's okay. We're going to look at the first, these, these final conclusion narratives. And the first one, I'll call this Micah and his mom. Now, most of you, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, the name Micah really took off. It's a popular name. Most of you have a friend or know somebody or nephew or somebody named Micah, kid in your neighborhood, that they're not named after this Micah. There's another Micah who's a prophet and wrote an incredible prophetic word that's at the end of the Old Testament. That's the Micah that people are naming their kids after, not not this dude. Um, Micah is a fascinating name. Actually, in verse 1 and verse 4 of chapter 17, it has his full name. It's Micah Yehu. And it literally means, uh, who is like Yahweh? His name is a rhetorical question. Because in, in their culture, when you say Micah Yehu, the answer is supposed to be no one. So his, literally his name is, who is like Yahweh? No one. Uh, Micah is the short version of that. It's the, at the, later in the book, it just calls him Micah. Um, so it's interesting that who is like Yahweh, the guy who's named after that, decides to do everything and try to take all the glory in him and his mom that Yahweh should have. And then the corruption spreads. Um, I'm not going to go into all the ways the narrator is showing the reader, us, and, and the original readers much, that how direct the violations to, to God is happening in these narratives. But I want to stress this morning that Micah and his mom, and then eventually the, the uh, Danites, uh, basically violate like word for word Deuteronomy. <laughs> like you could read something in Deuteronomy, don't do this, and they do it. I'll show seven of them. Uh, that are direct violations. You can put the seven direct violations slide up. You know, disregard for parental well-being, magical curse, magical blessing made in the name of Yahweh. Maybe his mom named him Micah for some non-spiritual reasons, maybe just to get some kind of favor. Uh, Homemade idols of silver, production of a private shrine, making a a personal priest. Lawrence is... (laughs) You can't hire Lawrence to be your personal pastor, anybody, okay? It's not biblical, okay? He's the pastor for God. You can't, you can't have him as your personal. Uh, adopting, and then if the personal priest isn't enough, paying a Levite to be your personal priest, and then religious paraphernalia. And the corruption, as you heard the account that Greg read, spreads and spreads. Uh, like I said, the narrator is saying, basically, go back and read the list in Deuteronomy of what not to do, and they do it, and then really read the list of what to do, and they intentionally don't do it. So that's the first narrative. Uh, and then, like that first narrative, we get the second conclusion. Um, and it's also showing how they violate God's laws. But this is worse than just melting some silver and building an idol. At least it seems worse to us. It involves rape 
and violence and war and destruction. So this is, this is the pattern of the final account, the final narrative. Uh, in chapter 19, we hear about the rape of the Levite's concubine. We'll leave this up for a couple minutes as I explain it. Well, the first part is the Levite shouldn't have had a concubine. For those of you who don't know, a concubine is like a second wife. Uh, the Levite shouldn't have had a concubine, but he gets a concubine and causes some problems, and she went, runs back to her hometown, and through a whole series, I, we didn't have it read this morning, uh, basically just just dark. This might be the darkest chapter in the Bible. They, they basically recreate Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the people of the town surround the home and say they want to rape the man that's, that, that's visiting with them, and then... Instead, they throw out the woman. She is raped. Um, he even offers his virgin daughters, which is just dark. The whole, it's literally the Israelites became Sodom. Pretty well, the grandson of Moses was around. You know, this isn't like 400 years later. So we can, yeah. Uh, the account continues because the Benjamites are like, wow, that they, they did this. Uh, they find out. This is gross. He, they cut the bodies up and send, send 12 pieces to the 12 tribes. Uh, the Benjamites, are, I mean, the, the other tribes say because this happened by the Benjamites, we're going to destroy them. So they just wipe, kill tons of them. There's only about 600 men who survived because they ran away. Then they're like, well, those 600 men can't marry our wives. So then... They come up with this other plot and kill a bunch of other people who didn't show up at this event, uh, Jabesh, Gilead, and then, and then, then all they have this event where they're like, these guys don't have wives, so those guys who didn't have wives get see the other women at the, at this celebration, this religious celebration, and take them, basically rape them, and and the the cycle continues, very very dark. Uh, the last book of Judges is, is tough trying to summarize this, and that's all I can say, guys. It's dark. We can take that slide off. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's the last sentence in, uh, in the narrative. The good thing is, is in our, our Bibles, which are based on the Greek Bible, which is the Bible that the early church used, right after this is Ruth. So there's some hope. Because <laughs> Ruth, we get David, but more importantly, we get Jesus. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So just when you're feeling hopeless and depressed, I want you to know that God is working good even amongst, amongst this terrible scenario. In the fall, as Waypoint, we're going to study 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and Chronicles. Uh, and we'll hear the rest of redemptive history and a lot of the brokenness this summer. We're gonna next starting next week. We're gonna study Mark, do a mini sermon series in Mark, preparing us for Easter. Then we're gonna look at Colossians and, and Galatians. Um, but what does this mean for us today? What is these these two accounts that are in the Bible that are very dark mean for us today? First thing I want to recognize is that. In these accounts, especially the sec in the second account, generally they don't talk about names. They leave the names anonymous. And most scholars believe 
That's because they wanted the people of Israel to think that this could happen to anybody. That the corruption and decay that is in this story could spread to every person from a local villager to a wealthy person like, like Micah and his mom. She obviously was wealthy to have that much silver. To a Levite, someone who's supposed to represent God and take care of the temple and the, the tabernacle. To a local leader. So we already know that the judges have some problems, but the last thing is like all of you can fall prey to this. I mean, I, I would say it's summed up in the Gideon account. The whole, the whole thing, is they just couldn't follow God. And in the Gideon account in Judges 8, it says, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler, you and your son, and make your grandson be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son, but I'll name my son, meaning that I'm king. Uh, the Lord will rule over you. However, I have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder. You, you, like, so even with Gideon, the, the, the narrative is showing that, that everyone is corrupt when we don't turn back to God. So there's the jealousies of the Ephraimites the religious pragmatism of the Danites, the paganism of Gideon, the self-centeredness of Samson, leading to the violence of the women, and the last story, violence against women by the men of, of Gibeah. Again, I'm going to read the last verse. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So what does this mean for us today? One thing... Judges serves as a warning to the church. Um, and at this point, I want to plug the podcast again. Eric Lawrence and I learned a lot over these past 12 weeks studying Joshua and Judges. And uh, Eric led the last podcast where we just kind of talked about some things. Just our, so, so go to that podcast. This sermon is complemented by that podcast. So I can't say everything this morning, but... I can say this morning that we can look at this judges as a warning to the church. Um, so here's what we see in the last two narratives. Moral bankruptcy, trying to manipulate God's will, the allurement of sin, declining morals, sexual sin, including um, you know, rape and homosexuality and, and just violence against women. I mean, all these things you just see. Violence living in self-interest. So if Judges serves as a warning to the church, um, you know, showing us not to do what it means to not, to not to do what's right in our own eyes, but to do what's right in the eyes of God, how to not drift and let these things happen, you know, that's, that's where we're at this morning. How, what can we learn from this as God's people? Um, and at this point, I do want to emphasize something that maybe you know, is, is taught wrongly that the church is the new Israel. We're grafted into Israel. Um, so we can see that Judges is a direct lesson and warning to the church because they're part of us. You know, Father Abraham had many sons. Father Abraham is our father too. Um, we're grafted into this. But at the same time, I want to emphasize that when we read about the nation of Israel, the lessons are for us as the new Israel, the church. It doesn't apply directly, I'm saying directly, to modern political nations and boundaries. I think oftentimes we, we mix the two together. You know, they think, I think God cares about nations and boundaries, but the church 
is and how we learn from these examples and how God is working in, in nations are, are two different things. So what I'm talking about here is the church. But we can look at history and see that the, there was a time when nations in the church were intertwined and nations had, were, you know, in Europe particularly, where nations had a national church. Uh, but I'm just going to hone in on one thing and we can see easily that the darkness that appears in Judges appears in our own Protestant tradition. Like we don't have to look at other traditions. We can see it in imperialism and colonialism. We can see it in the slavery system. We can see it in the Jim Crow racism. There are people in our own denominations who you can go back in the archives and preach sermons 1920s to 1950s using the Bible to defend very, very dark stuff and permitting things. So we don't have to look very far. Part of the being the church is, is always reforming, always looking at our sin. And if they could do it then, we could do it now. I remember my Old Testament professor in seminary, we took this Old Testament class, and he's actually German descent, and his parents are from Germany. We start the Old Testament class, and he shows this amazing video that the Nazis made in the 30s. And it was like, the, they had the best video technology. They were like the most advanced. They were just doing really, really well. And he said they had, and his point was, God had blessed them so much. They had so much. And what did they do with it? And he was kind of like, what do we do with it? And I think he was talking about his own people. That's why he showed the video. He's like, my own people had God's word. They had God's promises. They had blessing beyond unblessing. And what did we do with it? And he used that as the springboard for us studying the Old Testament. The church can and will drift uh, if we lose sight of what it means to really honor God. Before we move on, I, I want to say two statements. So I, we as the pastors and the leaders of the church, we do want every person to walk away from our study of Judges asking God, how am I as a follower of Jesus, or how are we as the body of Jesus rejecting our devotion to King Jesus and his ways and replacing them with the idols and broken systems of this world. Like I want us to walk away saying that we will drift toward that. At the same time, we don't want people to walk away from our study of judges acting like Gideon or Samson or Micah and his mom or the Danites with arrogant pragmatism, taking matters into our own hands, saying what we are doing represents God and his ways. Um, basically replacing one idol with another idol. So this is tricky. Most of the time in history when, the, when you recognize sin, we tend to just turn and replace it with another idol. If you look at our history, these are our folks, you know, these are our people. So we, we've got to, and we, we will have blind spots. 50 years from now, they might look at us and say, well, man, you guys did this really well, but you missed this. And that's okay. When Jesus set up the church, he knew we would make mistakes. Actually, every New Testament letter, except for maybe one, is directly dealing with conflict and mistakes in the church, trying to help correct them to show them a better way. So, so when Jesus set up the church, he didn't think that we would just be perfect and we'd get it all right every time. But he did give us some ways to do this. So how do we do this as a church and how do we do this individually? So, you know, what's the action point for a sermon? 
I honestly believe that every time we preach on the New Test on the Old Testament, the action point is probably written for us already in one of the New Testament letters. Because the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament through the lens of the four Gospels, through the lens of Jesus. So, the answer comes that we have to be the body of Christ. John 14 through 17, chapters 14 to 17. God, God, Jesus establishes the church and he says, y'all, y'all have to do this. I will lead you into all truth. I will give you what you need to be the church. And we can truly believe that. And I think there's some cool things about idols and, and not doing what they did. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul literally tells them to learn from Israel's example. Now, he's talking a little more and more about their wandering in the wilderness, but I think it applies to Judges too. We preached a sermon series on 1 John. I think Pastor Eric preached the last sermon on John. You know, John ends 1 John, last sentence. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. He gives this whole summary on like what it means to walk in the light and we're forgiven and we're new creations of Christ, all these things. And then he just throws it out there at the end because he knows that that's our heart's tendency. But I think the best place for us to go to say like, okay, what's the action point is to Hebrews. Because I believe Hebrews is written for Jewish people to help them see how does this all make sense? Like, like we, we were given this law and this system and this day of atonement. How, how does it all make sense? How, where does it all, what is Jesus, where does Jesus fit in all that we were given from Moses and, our, and through our history? And in Hebrews 11, which is sometimes called the Hall of Faith, I'd call it the, the faith of the people in Israel in, in Israel's history who had faith in God's promises. Ultimately, it's showing God's faithfulness to his covenant people despite their failures and shortcomings. But in Hebrews 11, starting with verse 30, the beginning part, he covers a lot of like basically from creation to Moses. And he get, you get a lot of details on each, each person, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. But then at the, starting here, he, he talks about the Joshua account. He says, it was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. Notice he doesn't use Joshua's name. Um, so I don't think he's trying to be comprehensive here. He's trying to show the whole picture. Uh, it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now he goes into the, what we'd call the judge, Joshua and Judges period. And he, he covers it quickly, much quickly, much more quickly than he covered the earlier part, the author of Hebrews does. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, uh, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, received what God had promised them. They shut the mouth of, mouth of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped, by, escaped death by the other edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to fight. Women received back their loved ones and it, uh, back again from the death. And then the final statement, it just says that they were looking for a better resurrection. So the author of Hebrews is trying to say that they didn't even understand what was coming. They didn't understand who the Messiah was. 
but they were putting their faith in that. So Hebrews is, is setting us up to say that, that the author of Hebrews is very aware of the failures of all these judges. And he's setting this, I believe, he's setting it up for chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. This is from the New Living Translation. So some of you may not be familiar with this if you use another translation, but I wanted to use this translation this morning because it, it translates the uh, Greek idioms right into English. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So I would, I would agree, the author of Hebrews here is telling you how to deal with the Old Testament. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Go back to verse 1. Um, fix your eyes on Jesus. Strip off every weight that slows you down. Especially the sin that easily trips us up. Micah was tripped up by sin. Gideon was tripped up by sin. Samson was tripped up by sin. There is a way. And it's by focusing our eyes on Jesus. And, and in the body of Christ, we can say, okay, what do I need? What are my blind spots? We need to be able to share that with each other. If you're the kind of person who your close Christian friends can't share a blind spot with you, like you're greedy with money or you're obsessed with this, you know, you, you're watching too much TV or you're, they, they can't share something that could lead you to, you know, go drifting away from the goodness of God and the goodness that we have in Christ, then change that. Have people in your life that can share with you. Now, don't go around, you know, Jesus says, you know, the speck of sawdust in your eye, you remove the log in your own eye. Like, there, there is a way to do this properly. We're not all called to be condemning every person at every minute, but we need to strip these things off and, and so we can focus on Christ, so we can run this race. Um, and the passage goes on and it says, think about all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not given your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to his children when he said, My children, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. This is from a quote from the Old Testament. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes each one he accepts as his child. And I think the author of Hebrews here is saying, Like a good parent, God disciplines us so that we can turn back and run the race. He's not doing this because he doesn't love us. It's like we've literally fallen off the track. And he picks us up and he's disciplining us so that we can get back on the track and run the race we're called to run. So the, the application is what does this mean for us today? I would, I would say God's given us Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He's given us the letters. He's given us his spirit. He's given us this body. He's given us Hebrews that gives us a clear illustration of what it means to not fall to turning to these other things by fixing our eyes on Christ individually and as a community. Finally, last point. Where can we find hope in the good news in this historical account covering 400 years of brokenness and sinfulness and to be honest, a lot of dark darkness? The first thing is Ruth. Right after this, historically, we hear a story about a Moabite woman. A Moabite woman. 
the Moabites were the, because Lot was living in a cave because he was living in fear, his daughters got him drunk and they both got pregnant and one of the daughters became, the, her, her descendants became the Moabites. God saves the world. Actually, Jesus has a Moabite and Ammonite uh, ancestor. I believe that's intentional. Matthew points out the Moabite ancestor. God is saving his people through the brokenness. The darkness, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain. We can see David, but we can really see the true David. I'm going to end with this. Hebrews chapter 4. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. The author of Hebrews is directly addressing the, what happened in Joshua and Judges. But he's relating it to us. By the rest, he meant the land, when it says to enter his rest. And he says, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For the good news, the gospel, that God has prepared, that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did to them no good because they didn't share faith, share the faith of those who listen to God. And then to verse 6. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter the rest because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest. And that time is today. You can put this back up, uh, starting with verse 7. God announced through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. This is Psalm 95. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. And what this is promising is we can have rest now, and there's, we're going to have rest one day when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Remember he talks about earlier running the race, falling, stumbling. He's linking the two things together. I mean, that comes later in the, in the chapter. For the word of God... This is the transition the author of Hebrew makes. is alive and powerful. is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are all accountable. The cool thing is here he's equating that, that in the garden they were naked and, and they, they could stand before God. What does Lawrence always say? We want to be known, loved. We want and have purpose, but we want God. If we were so afraid, if God really saw us, like how we really are, like he couldn't love us. Others couldn't love us. But in the Christian community, in God, the the word of God is going to cut through that and, and expose us so that we can turn to him and get back on the track and run the race. And then it says this. So then... Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, just as Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest understands our weakness, for he faced 
all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. How are we going to not build idols and turn to these things? We're going to know that our high priest has already done it for us. So we can have confidence. We can have confidence. He's done it. We don't need to build idols and temples and all these things. We can fix our eyes on Jesus. The world was dark, sinful, and broken at the time of the judges. It was dark, sinful, and broken at the time that Paul and Peter and John and the author of the book of Hebrews were leading the early church. And the world is dark, sinful, and broken now. But we have a great high priest who 2,000 years ago came and light broke into the darkness. John chapter 1. We have this great high priest. We have his spirit in us. We can, as God's people, trust him and do what is right in God's eyes. Not what seems right in our own eyes. Last verse in Hebrews. This is my benediction. Hebrews chapter 13. This is how the author of Hebrews wants to sum up all he's been teaching, showing them how Jesus is the great high priest. He is the one who atones for our sins. He's given them hope. He's given us hope. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. When the author of Hebrews gave us this, he believed that this could be our reality. Because of the great high priest, not because of us. Not because we do, when we do things right in our own eyes, this will not be our reality. But when we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we will be able to be individually and as a body the people he's called us to be. Now, Pastor Lawrence is going to lead us in the Lord's Supper where we remember the great high priest who went before us. My, um, I think it's on, but yeah, we go. When I was younger, my parents um, had a little takeout restaurant, and they'd close around 8.15, 8.30 at night, and they wouldn't get home till about 9 o'clock. But every time they get home, after they get home, they'd have dinner with us. I don't, we already ate, my sister and I out cook for us, we'd already eat ahead of time because that's pretty late for kids to eat, but we sat down with my parents as they would have their dinner at 9 o'clock. We'd sit down because that was our time to connect with my parents. They work all day, you know, from about... 9 o'clock in the morning to 9 o'clock at night, so they work all day, we wouldn't see them. We'd go to bed kind of early because we had school the next day. So we get together around the dinner table, and we sit down, my parents were eating, and they'd ask us how our day was, we'd connect, we'd talk, we'd share what's going on, mainly, you know, being Korean-American parents, they were uh, very, uh, how was school? What's your grades? 99? 100? But uh, it was still a time for us to connect, a time for us to belong. A time for us to see what's going on in the day. Guys, in many ways, God has blessed us with this sacrament of communion. 
And one of the beautiful blessings about this time is that this is not something that we just take by ourselves, as we've kind of often done in the Western church, is we take communion as a very personal thing, just me and God thing. And it is, don't get me wrong, that's part of it. But it's also a family meal. This is a time where we gather together as a family and partake in this meal together. A time where we profess, God, that what we need more than food and water is you. And we celebrate the work that you've done on the cross. We celebrate the fact that we're connected to you, that we need to be known by you, that, we, that our, our very move, our sustenance, our, our enjoyment of life is connected directly to you. And so this is our time where we practice this beautiful sacrament, this time of communion, and we say, God, in this time, we want to remember, we want to receive. We know that this world in many ways is dark darkness. We look around and we see it, and we feel it. But in our time with this beautiful sacredness, my parents were, where they were working so hard, they were full of work, and they were working so hard at school, we had this sacred, beautiful time where we gathered together as a family, remember the goodness of our family life together. Guys, in this midst of our dark, dark world, we come together as a family in this holy assembly together, and we proclaim our need for Jesus, and we proclaim the hope that we have in him. As we partake in the body and the blood, as we partake in the juice and the bread, as we partake in this act of sacrament, receive his grace, what we're saying to this dark, dark world is a light has shone in the darkness. And the darkness is not the end. And as we partake in it over and over again, we repeat this truth, that Jesus came he lived a perfect life of love. He died a sacrificial death. He inaugurated his kingdom, and his kingdom will advance, and he will come again. Amen? So the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Broken for you. He says, as we eat of this, may we remember. May we receive his grace. Let's partake together. And as he poured the wine, this is the blood of my covenant, a promise poured out for you. As we partake this family meal together, we remember that his promise is for us as a family. It's a corporate promise. It's as a family we experience his goodness, as a family, we proclaim his hope. And as a family, as a body together, even with all our imperfections, even with all our Micah-like tendencies, our Gideon-like tendencies, with all our weakness and all our sin, we partake in this together, saying only in him and only in the work of Jesus do we have hope. So let's drink. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessed means of communion. We thank you for the blessed sacrament that you've blessed us with. That we can partake as a family together, as we can acknowledge and remember our sinfulness. We see the dark darkness in this world, and God, but we also at the same time through this communion, through our Holy Assembly, we see your light shining through. God, so we thank you. We thank you that our hope is not built on our own ability because we are often like the book of Judges. We fall deeper and deeper. We fall further and further. We lead to more and more decay. But our hope is found in your sustaining work, your everlasting covenant. 
So as we partake, as we partake in the communion today, that is our remembrance. That is what we hold and cling so holy upon. Your work upon the cross. Your life and your death and your resurrection. Jesus, thank you. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.